the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Talk easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by author and cultural critic Margot Jefferson. Margot was formerly at the New York Times, where she won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism in 1992. She's also written for Newsweek, Vogue, and New York Magazine. When she's not teaching writing at Columbia University, she's writing herself. She's published two of my favorite memoirs in recent memory. The first book is called Negroland, which charts her upbringing in Chicago, coming of age in the 50s and 60s. In her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, she blends personal history with cultural critique writing on subjects like feminism, black power, literature, music, mental health, and more. Margot and I spoke the day before Roe v. Wade was overturned. We do discuss the potential ruling, but if you haven't heard our episode with Supreme Court lawyer Neil Katyal from last week, I'd encourage you to seek that out. Leaving that conversation with Neil, I felt no one wants to be right about something so wrong. And I imagine many of you feel that way today. It's a feeling that began with Donald Trump in 2016, a feeling that persisted 
with Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation in 2018, and then again with Justice Ginsburg's passing in 2020. The writing was on the wall. It was clearly there for everyone to see, and yet none of that writing, none of that forecasting, none of that eased the pain of this decision. Jenna Wortham, who co-hosts the show Still Processing with Wesley Morris, both of whom have been on this podcast, she wrote something that captures the feeling I'm trying to get at. She said, intellectually knowing that something is coming does not prepare you for the devastation in the body when it hits. The 6-3 decision from the Supreme Court was not a surprise. We knew it was coming. But the devastation in the body, there is no preparation for that. We know this is not about babies, because if it was about babies, there would be universal health care. There would be free education. There would be free daycare. So what is this about? When someone shows you who they are, Maya Angelou said, believe them the first time. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. You can go back to the 1990s to know who Clarence Thomas is. But in case you needed a reminder, here he is in the Mississippi ruling just two days ago. He wrote, We should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous. We have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. Those precedents that he names, by the way, are privacy, contraception, and marriage equality. Thomas has told us who he is time and time again, and I, for one, believe him. And it's because of that belief that I think we must be prepared to respond in protest, at the polls, in supporting existing organizations that assist with the cost of abortion, and perhaps these new costs in the years ahead. On our website, in the show notes of this episode, our team has assembled a short list of groups that have been preparing for this day. Organizations that will not be beaten down by this decision, but rather fortified in their resolve to keep going, to keep fighting, just as they always have and will. For the better part of 50 years, Margot Jefferson has been doing the same in her work. As part of the feminist movement, the Black Power movement, the gay rights movement, she has been a guiding light in our darkest hours. She has continued to go on. And I'm so grateful to be passing through with someone like her. So, without further ado, here is Margot Jefferson. Margot Jefferson, pleasure to meet you. Likewise, Sam. How are you feeling? A little stage fright, but I'm good. Is that true? Yeah, I always have that. What is that about? Where does that come from? Well, you know, people always say that if you take any kind of public performance seriously, you're going to have stage fright. We're going to work past it. Yes, we are. To be in this world. Do you, ha you have no stage fright? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Every time. Just enough to quicken the senses and the neurons. That's a good thing. The senses have been quickened. I'm ready to sit with you. Me, me too. The neurons are in an orderly fashion. We just got to keep them moving. Exactly. That's all we have to do. You have this excellent new book out called Constructing a Nervous System in which you glide through history, both America's and your own, 
toggling between the past and present, but in all the places to begin, and there are a lot of places to begin, I thought we maybe just start at the beginning of your book, if you wouldn't mind reading it for us. Okay. I stood in a bright, harsh light. The stage was bare. I extended my arm, no, flung, hurled it out, pointed an accusatory finger, then turned to an unseen audience and declared, this is the woman with only one childhood. It was part of the night's dream work, and I was rattled when I woke up, for I'd been addressing myself. My tone was harsh, and my outstretched arm with its accusing finger had the force of that moment in melodrama when the villain, hitherto successful in his scheme to ruin the heroine's life, is revealed, condemned, and readied for punishment. I understood what I had to do. At the end of his stage show, Bill Bojangles Robinson would look up at the lighting booth and shout, Give me a light! My color. Pause, then black out. When the light returned, I knew it was time to construct another nervous system. For most of my adult life, I had felt that to become a person of complex and stirring character, a person, as I put it, of inner consequence, I must break myself into pieces, hammer, saw, chisel away at the unworthy parts, then rebuild. It was laborious, like stone masonry. And on the stone masonry model, the human self says, go on, admires itself for saying, go on, and proceeds to go on. As I went on, I grew dissatisfied. This edifice was too fixed. I wanted it to become an apparatus of mobile parts, parts that fuse, burst, fracture, cluster, hurdle, and drift. I wanted to hear its continuous thrum. Thrum go the materials of my life. Chosen, imposed, inherited, made up. I imagined it as a nervous system, but not the standard biological one. It was an assemblage. My nervous system is my structure of recombinant thoughts, memories, feelings, sensations, and words. It's time to construct another nervous system. With a reading voice like that, how could you be nervous? <laughs> ah, the voice. It's, it's the good cover. It's the good cover. <laughs> it's a good cover when your voice sounds like that. Before we dive in, why a nervous system? Well, we're all stuck with ours, aren't we? <laughs> They're impressive structures and they connect all sorts of parts of our being. But one generally thinks about them when they're acting up. I loved the idea of one that, in fact, was your own emotional, psychological, intellectual invention and reinvention. Um, it gave me that sense of structure one can't avoid as a human being, a sense that one is structured, but of constant revising and altering. So the nervous system could be like a composition, you know, or a piece of sculpture that every day or every minute you could tinker with with. Surprise yourself by, if you were lucky. I think you were lucky a, a couple times in this book, at least. <laughs> you write, my nervous system is my structure of recombinant thoughts, memories, feelings, sensations, and words. And I figure we hold some of those memories and feelings and then see where the words land between us. I'm at the ready. You grow up partly in the Hyde Park area of Chicago 
in the 50s and 60s, the youngest of two. In the past, you've called your home an island of comfort amid poverty. Your father was the head of pediatrics at Provident, your mother a homemaker and society woman, together wanting the best for their children and wanting their children to be among the best, you write in your memoir, Negroland. So here you are, it's 1956, you're nine years old, rifling through your family's record collection when you stumble upon an LP from Ella Fitzgerald. What happens to a young Margot in that moment? Young Margot has heard her before. She's heard that voice because young Margot is always following and listening to what her parents are doing. But I put that record, that Black LP, I picked it myself, I put it on the record player. And that gave me a more aggressive access to Ella Fitzgerald. I am enchanted by the voice. But the struggle I am having from about nine through the following anxious pre-adolescent years is Ella Fitzgerald looks like she could be your librarian or your very serious, somewhat portly um, piano teacher. And I want something else. You know, she is one of the Black women that one sees. You know, she's most visible in this still quite segregated culture. <laughs> And I want her to be, I obviously wanted to look like Lena Horne, must be, must be what I, I wanted to be a beauty. I want her in that way to, I want her looks to create that standard of flawless perfection that everything about, you know, being a black person, being a good Negro girl, being one who represents um, and is from a family that helps represent the best of its race. We are supposed to be flawless on all fronts. So I wanted to be a beauty. But when you watched her on stage, you would notice what? She would sweat and she would use this white handkerchief like Louis Armstrong used. Um, this was also a little confounding and a little disturbing to me. In Again, we're talking the 50s, early 60s, the mythologies, the rituals, the insistences of good bourgeois girlhood and womanhood. You weren't supposed to sweat if you were a girl. If you were a lady, you perspired. But <laughs> you really weren't even those glands, you know, <laughs> were supposed to be very muted. And there was Ella. Sweat was working class labor dripping all over your clothes. Sweat was um, unbecoming in a woman or a lady. <laughs> Clearly another reason we needed Title IX many, many years later. And I was, um, I, was, I was again shocked by that intrusion into this flat map of femininity that I was drawing. It took me years to realize that that was, um, it was actually quite daring. She would usually sweat when she was improvising, scatting, when you could see the musicians, you know, working to keep up with her. And, you know, that's what male artists on stage, um, jazz musicians, classical musicians, that's what they did. They perspired, they sweated. They didn't mind showing you what the labor would cost them. And I, uh, I came to love that, as she put it, borrowing and appropriating um, a line from a Jerome Kern um, love song, Sweat gets in my eyes. Not smoke, but sweat. <laughs> you write in the book, it's her sweat and her heft that give me intimations 
of a black female destiny she has thwarted. It's destiny that every hour, day, and year of my young life is plotted to prevent. Exactly. Again, working class labor, being somebody's maid, being at the mercy of other people's demands, being seen as an instrument that could be useful, but was in no way distinguished, coherent, fully alive. What were the crucial plot elements of your young life at that time? School and a series of pastimes, picnics uh, in the summer, um, summer camps, lots of uh, concerts, recitals, you know, opera in the winter, an elaborate club life. Um, you know, the parents, all the parents in my world designed various clubs with names like Jack and Jill, Trees and Twigs, Majors and Minors for us so that we could have activities that ranged from ice skating to African-American history lectures, um, but so that we could also form a coherent class, basically keep sustaining that haute bourgeoisie that the Blacks in my world had inherited and created for themselves. The central dilemma in your upbringing, as I understand it, is not around survivor's guilt, as you've written, but the guilty confusion of those who are raised to defiantly accept their entitlement. To be more than survivors, you've written, to be victors who knew that victory was as much a threat as failure and could be turned against them at any moment. Did you sense that push and pull growing up? Or is that years later understanding who you were then? I would say it was both in that, like so many children, I liked to listen. I liked to overhear, you know, whether it was at um, your your parents when the door wasn't quite closed. You're watching TV. They're talking uh, about, you know, some frightening racial news story. Dinner parties when race would always come up. So, You take it in. You're also very aware. You know, every Black parent is thinking about the racial pedagogy that they have to give their child. I'm also balancing what I'm picking up and overhearing with what I'm being told. And there's always an urgency to that. Uh, You know, even when it's ostensibly what we want you to do very well in school, there's always that extra, that implied or sometimes said your teachers might not expect you to do well because you're a Negro. But, you know, we know that um, we can all be as good as, if not better. So, you know, it's said, it's unsaid, it's in the atmosphere as a kind of an arc of tension and of necessity. What did that arc of tension produce inside of you at that age? At that age... Margot just sat back in her seat, for those wondering. Sitting back was also my being about to say, well, I could block it out off times because your parents are also doing everything they can to give you um, a kind of carefree life, you know, with all those rewards and privileges. But what it did do was everything has its shadow, doesn't it? That shadow was that everything one encountered in the public sphere, let's say, um, in any sphere that had white people there as well as blacks, either prevailing or sharing the space, you always knew that you you were supposed to represent, and that meant represent damn well, not just yourself, 
but your family and your people. Maybe that's the source partly of my of stage fright for me. I'm standing for, I'm representing, I'm being seen as I'm having projected onto me all kinds of racial expectations. Well, I want to assure you something today. Yes, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sam. Today, you're only expected to be Marga. I've got to be me. Da, 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 da. That one? Yeah, that okay. one. <laughs> That's Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, the one, the one we know and love. That's all we're expecting. Daring to try to do it or die. I've got to be me. You mentioned representation. That's something I, I wanted to talk about because although you are growing up in this swath and sheltered life, as you write, you're also, at the same time, at a loss for avatars in books, in films, etc. You write in Constructing a Nervous System, what happens when you're a viewer, spectator, reader, who craves imaginative adventure and has no, I don't want to say models, I'll say avatars, to conduct identity experiments with and on. I like to claim there's a power in learning to imagine what hasn't, can't, and won't imagine you. What kind of power is it, though? For a while, you felt good about those words I just read. Until one night, rifling through your old notes, you find something that makes you pause. I believe we are speaking of Condoleezza Rice and a note card, which I'd written her words, that she was internalizing. The phrase was, I'm internalizing his, meaning George Bush's world. Now... That came from the blue as a, as a Condi quote. But, of course, it is an almost caricatured um, <laughs> representation of the way one accepts and enters, the way, while I was certainly growing up, you accept and enter and internalize traditions, legacies that either excluded and ignored you or declared you second to third to fourth rate. So, you know, I, Condoleezza woke that up in me again, but it's not that I didn't know that and hadn't, frankly, been struggling with that and working with it since the 60s and the 70s. Um, you know, Black power, uh, <laughs> women's studies, Black women's studies, queer studies. I mean, that those were giving people like me tools we needed. But to see, to read Condi saying that, really like zoomed me back to that kind of vice of perfect student studying, perfect student behavior uh, when it came to being as white a black person. And there I'm not talking so much about the, the psyche. Oh, oh, you're an Oreo. But presentationally, you know, having all of the manners, the ways of speaking, the ways of behaving, et cetera, that designated um, that a black person was as good as, hence derivative of, in some way, a white person. And I, that had been very much how I had grown up. Mimic and internalize, because they won't accept you otherwise. I want to sit with that idea of internalizing his world, in this case... George Bush's. <laughs> George Bush Jr.'s, yeah. Which is a fate no one deserves. No. Though she got very far. Unpack that idea a little bit more for us. In her case, what did that mean? And in your case, what did that mean? It means submitting your intellect, your convictions, and then those become deeper. They enter into your psyche. Having those submit to the strictures, the structures of a man 
and a system that was in many ways inferior to you. In her case, it meant taking on, borrowing, wielding um, certain kinds of national and global power that were essentially ruthless and imperial. So there were a lot of uh, worlds being entered and a lot of roles being played that, yes, she was raised to be also you know, perfect to excel, but that's, that's a great leap. Not forward, but a great leap. But you also felt some of this. I certainly did. <laughs> you brought me back to that, didn't you? You talking about any piece of art or any person is just a delight to me. But I am curious about you, too. I'm realizing um, in that it's still, in some ways, somewhat embarrassing to talk about. <laughs> I was such a good girl. All of the things I complied with weren't terrible things in the least. But the part of me that that really enjoyed, you know, kind of living up to these constricting ideals. Perfect behavior. Um, I don't like the part of me that loved behaving perfectly according to these um, prevailing standards. Is some of that shame embodied in your attraction to, say, Bing Crosby? <laughs> yes and no. Meaning, by the time I fell in with Bing, um, I had tools. I had weapons. <laughs> you know, history had been on my side and it had um, allowed me to foreground some other aspects of myself. So I had a whole, a whole armature that allowed me to treat Bing as a caricature that was also seductive. And that to me was interesting. It didn't threaten me because when it's caricature, you have control over it. I think it operated the way lust for someone who's very compelling, but in some way also repulsive, operates. That can be fun, unless you behave like a fool. But I turned my writing onto Bing, so I didn't have to be a fool. You write, minstrels must have some performative essence, gestural, verbal, behavioral, that you, spectator, imitator, and opposite, hold in contempt, even as you crave its license. And part of the license I wanted, you know, which again, he's an extreme example of, was that I'm entitled to everything. I'm easy with it. I'm comfortable. I can behave badly, but my tone of voice and my manner never change. I can do anything I want. I'm entitled to everything. That is white, hetero, <laughs> male. I have some kind of artistic talent um, or some other kind of power total entitlement. Uh, and I can critique it all I want, and I shall to the end of my days. But I do get the lure of it. I do get why one would never want to have to relinquish it. It's a fascinating push-pull between what you're attracted to and what repulses you fundamentally. It is. And I have always been, always meaning for, you know, since I was in my 20s, absolutely fascinated by minstrelsy, you know, the, the study of it, the racial dynamics, the performative dynamics, the gender, that's clearly a good deal of what <laughs> was, has been going on for decades, that perilous internal and external um, performative space. What fascinates you about it now? You know, being able to completely inhabit styles, manners that are outrageous, 
and be in complete control of them and seem to be commenting on them, even as you're acting them out. I think that's a fabulous skill. Outrageous in a way that you never were being the well-mannered girl you talked about. That's right. I could perform. You know, I liked being on stage. But no, um, I was vivacious rather than um, (laughs) intrusive. And Naughty, that's another reason I'm so taken with the Topsy character from Uncle Tom's Cabin. She's abused. She's maligned. She's but she's a triumph verbally she's a, and behaviorally. She's a figure of power. She's a bad girl who understands race minstrelsy and turns it on its head. I never was born. Nah, nah. No mother, no father. Well, that's true. You weren't. <laughs> that's clearly a reason I love her. As for the motivation behind these white minstrel mergers, can we sit with the scene from June of 1964 to celebrate your high school graduation, you attend a party hosted by a classmate of yours named Brian. Of course, his name was Brian. <laughs> Another boy, a friend of his, walks up to you. Whom I've never met before in my life. He did not go to our school. And what does he say? Hi, I see you're a Negro. Brian told me you were. Did I respond as a great performer would? Um, no, I Buttered. I put my nose in the air. I, as I recall, I walked off. I complained to some friends. And it took me ages to figure out why it was so. Of course, I knew it was presumptuous. And I knew that it was trying to be cutesy, intimate, flirty um, in a way that was sneaky. He was attracted to you. I think so. I think that's why we got that. Um, he had also, Brian told me, been down south on some demonstration. Um, so he also felt, well, I've got license. You know, I've a little bit of that, you know, the way a white rock and roller might slum a little bit. You know, I can talk in a black voice. So his version of that, you know, I've put myself out for your people, was this presumption. I see you're a Negro. Brian told me you were. What was I supposed to then do with that? Um, that's the other thing. It's one of those lines that allows you, at least in those days, allowed me very little room. I was at his mercy as I saw it. And that is partly because the whole premise of parties like this, you know, even if we were dancing to black records, was that it wasn't a question of who was white, who was, ne- who was Negro, who was Jewish, who was um, Gentile. You know, we were all in that equal privileged space, you know, celebrating and socializing and knowing that we were a little ahead of the rest of American society. That line of his ruptured, you know, that totally smooth, um, somewhat self-satisfied surface. And it reminded me, every time you walk into that setting, you don't really want to think immediately, oh, you know, I'm the only Black person there. You're less likely to brood over that or even think about it if you're with friends. So suddenly the whole setting was becoming perilous. And my role there, my position there was implicitly or explicitly questioned. But it's a moment you've turned over in your head for 58 years now. Well, not every day, not every hour. (laughs) Sorry, let me check my my notes. No, not every day. (laughs) Just twice a week. Hush, just hushed. (laughs) But yeah, it stays with me. And I certainly write about it as a kind of, I make it 
a real pivot in that section. So what about it do you understand now that you didn't then? I understand now how fragile my sense of belonging to this uh, world that I was integrating and supposedly absolutely um, equal in and comfortable in, not having to ask myself all the time. All of that was up for grabs. I was being made the oddity. You know, I'm so tired of the word the exotic, but I was, yeah, I was the object. I was the, the fetish. Either I was going to be the rejected object or I was going to be fetishized. Those are your options. And what about the gratuity of that interaction? Well, gratuities are favors, aren't they? Yes. So I like the idea that, you know, the, we use the word, oh, that was just gratuitous. Well, yes, his words were indeed gratuitous. But I felt that that was supposed to be a kind of almost as if he were doing me a favor. I'm noticing you. Um, you're a Negro. I've been down south. And I don't need his favors. I don't need his going down south. I don't, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was all so bloody presumptuous. And it meant a great deal to me. It was serious and it was frivolous to him also. So all those power inequities were operating. And then to boot, Brian said to me, well, have you been down south, Marco, smuggling? Knowing perfectly well that I had not, knowing perfectly well. Ah. So I'd been bested by the boys and I couldn't do a Bing Crosby and turn it, except now, many years later, to, um, to my account. I didn't have the weapons. Thank God for the page then. Oh, my God. Thank God for things that stay with you for 58 years. Yes. We have a whole lot more. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. 
win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Coming back from the break, just a few years after that high school graduation we were just talking about, that nasty incident, you find yourself in the throes of the 60s at Brandeis University. Are you doing a dance? Is that what that is? More like demonstrations, you know, beep, beep, bang, bang, umgawa, black power. That was one. Okay, so (laughs) we have civil rights anti-war, black power, feminism. Well, feminism as a movement. I got out of college in 68. Feminism was starting, but it wasn't hitting campuses yet. So that was, you know, the joy of my coming as a young woman to New York. But as all these issues were coming to prominence. Yeah, and then then LGBTQ in early 70s, too. (laughs) As all these things are coming to prominence. I think it's your turn to ask the questions. (laughs) Here's what Margot writes. However miserable you were personally, whatever the follies and failures of each movement, they made you think about the world. They gave your feelings an objective correlative. They made you try to think beyond the self you took for granted. This gravitational pull 
to look beyond yourself, to try to make sense of these emerging movements around you. Is this where you first became a critic? Ooh, yes, I guess so. Because all of these movements had to do with all of us, but I will say myself, you know, taking on the role of looking at um, what we've been raised with, what we'd inherited historically, what we didn't know historically, and taking it in actively. One wanted to be made new. You, you did. I mean, sometimes I acted, others did too, ridiculously, you know, in what you threw out or denounced. But we were right to want to put everything up for grabs. Now, that is partly where that opening part of my book comes from. I got to break myself in pieces. I got, you know, I'm just a little bourgeois this and that, take it apart. I mean, (laughs) there is that kind of self-criticism, deconstruction as a violent act as opposed to the academic, tear it down, take it apart. But that had to be, it had to be. (laughs) In the 70s, you start working as a writer and critic, contributing to Harper's, eventually becoming an associate editor at Newsweek. In the midst of the feminism movement, you appear in a documentary called Some American Feminists. Which I have not seen in a long time. You're about to watch it with me right now. Oh, Jesus. Okay. In it, you describe the unique challenges facing women of color in the feminist movement. This is you in 1975, 1976, and the film Some American Feminists. As I say, figuring out a theory that will embrace the paradox of fighting sexism, fighting the sexism of a group of people who are fighting racial and economic oppression from another group. It's a very interesting pyramid. It is black women being oppressed by white women who are also black women being oppressed by white women, black men, and white men. That is a situation that only non-white, if you will, black, Latin, so forth, Chinese women find themselves in. It is the kind of complexity that the white feminist movement has not yet in any way attempted to deal with. Coming back, do you think the white feminist movement has dealt with that oppression towards women of color since then? Because I'm thinking in this moment, we're living in a country that may very soon overturn Roe v. Wade. And the issue of abortion is one that, as you know, disproportionately affects women of color. And yet, in response to this potentially calamitous decision to strip abortion rights, the feminist movement will have to come together and fight back. There will be a response. And so has the movement in the intervening 47 years, has it reckoned with the crisis you described in 1975? Well, reckoned is a verb that suggests, here we are, you know, we're meeting, it's being done. You know, much more has happened because for the very simple reason in 40 years, there's been Black feminism, there's been Latinx feminism, there's Asian feminists, they're all, there's LGBTQ, to which belong all members of all these groups. So there's been no choice. We are, and now I'm speaking of Black women, we are a part of every major political action that involves women. And sometimes we are leading it, like that demonstration, pro-abortion demonstration last week in Washington. Yes. So it's being, a reckoning is in process, but a reckoning can only be a process. 
it's never going to be fully settled, not at all. And it also depends which levels, which branches, how progressive is a kind of mealy mouth word, but are you talking about um, what Betty Friedan was supposed to represent in that movie, which is totally mainstream, at best kind of blinded liberal? Are you talking about that? Or are you talking about, you know, a real vision that takes in um, all of these systemic um, racial class, um, et cetera, clashes. I think what I'm talking about is watching that clip. On one end, I love seeing Marco in 1975. I love the outfit. Kinzo top, yeah. But on the other side of that good outfit, the content of the passage about white feminism's struggle with intersectionality, I mean, it feels eerily timely and poignant to today. In the worlds that I inhabit, we don't argue about intersectionality, but it wouldn't still be a fairly novel, debated concept if we had made huge amounts of progress. I will leave out the debates about critical race theory because they are going on in another kind of right-wing zone on the head. But we wouldn't also be quarreling so much about an idea like microaggressions you know, that's not hard to understand. <laughs> it's very, very, very simple. Also, you know, people's... <sighs> I'm thinking, I suppose, of my generation in part. We all have our history of of grievances, of what we've been through, of what we've lost, of uh, what we've been struggling for and still haven't gotten. And sometimes when you're looking for allies, those grievance histories... They can really clash and they can make alliances hard. Also, generation gaps can make alliances and allegiances hard. If you've always taken abortion for granted, um, <clears throat> what are you going to do? What are you willing to, um, to fight for? If you've never heard of Title IX, um, are you going to get you know, <laughs> you're gonna get out um, on barricades? Are you going to go to... Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you mentioned... CRT, just a little bit there. These generational gaps, you've been teaching at Columbia for a long time. And in this new book of yours, you describe grappling with the work of white writers, both as a reader and as a professor. When it comes to teaching something like Willa Cather's The Song of the Lark, can you walk us through your thought process on this? Because I do think it applies to what we've been talking about. Yeah, actually, I think it does. That's right. Um, uh, I had taught this early novel of Willa Cabbage, which is a kind of wonderful portrait of the artist as a young woman. And at a certain point, I had managed, which was something I recognized when I recognized it, from um, my childhood, from my growing up and reading texts that could be wonderful in all sorts of ways and then could like slam you against the wall with some kind of you know, ugly racial or, or sexual, quote, insight, um, metaphor, etc. So I had managed to overlook a kind of um, thrum, if you will, of, uh, of white skin worship and of Western civilization, Western culture as the only source that um, America, finding its way into the 20th century, needed to draw on. And once I really took this in, I realized I had to find a way to teach that without pretending to my students or to myself 
that I thought the book was worthless or, you know, totally beyond the pale by virtue of those taints, those <laughs> racial taints that uh, Willa Cather applied to it. You know, it was very difficult um, because it's very, very hard to hold when it comes to um, these crucial psychological, historical, cultural uh, clashes and conundrums. It's very hard to keep more than one, maximum two ideas in your head at the same time and not be mealy-mouthed. But that, to me, is absolutely critical. That's absolutely crucial. My students, most of the ones I was teaching, were white. And it was easy, as at the party in 1964, to, <laughs> to treat them as, you know, students who admired me and looked up to me. And I enjoyed that. But I had to alienate them in certain ways and yet also retain enough, if you will, power for that alienation to be to be joined to teaching. Why don't we read from page 104 and 105 of the book? Where did I put it? You put it away. I, that was hush. I did. Any, anytime I say something, you go, hush, hush. <laughs> I, this, is, this was something I picked up from my sister. Oh, here it is. No, thank you. Okay, okay. Here's my diagnosis of what really held me back. I knew that if I revealed it too artlessly, my anger and my grief at this white skin fetishism could overwhelm me and leave white students, what? Guilty but confused, convinced but embarrassed, dutiful but resentful. How not to endanger my authority as their professor, the black woman instructing them on our and their literary canon. How could I initiate them into rigorous distaste for the limits of Cather's racialized aesthetic, probe the sources of her racialized needs, map their repercussions? Teaching them to feel intellectual contempt was too easy. I wanted them to feel chagrined. Chagrin implicates those who feel it. And I wanted them to be disappointed, roundly disappointed in this major American writer, Willa. Siebert Cather, as I'd had to be time and time again in a lifetime of reading white writers. That line between contempt and chagrin is one I want to emphasize here, because in all these conversations around CRT or how we approach parts of the literary canon that may, by 2022 standards, disappoint us, that line between contempt and chagrin it feels like it's rarely defined. And that may implicate you as well. Because, yeah, chagrin also does have to do with some kind of uh, embarrassment. But it's not guilt. It's, it's implication, but it's, it can, it's not just guilt. Pure guilt is much too simple. Guilt can exacerbate not only the need to compensate in ways that may not really be as true to your feelings as you'd like them to be, but guilt can also... Um, Increase your self-righteousness. You feel I've I've done this. You know, I've I've laid it out. I've emptied you know, <laughs> myself of the ugly. I've abased myself possibly through my guilt to to the people I felt guilty towards. Now I can go on. I'm cleansed. I'm fine. You've been teaching for a long time. I guess broadly, we're sort of talking about the fragility of this moment the way conversations seem to crumble if contested. 
Well, it's the bellicosity and the fragility, right? Which is a very strange and fucked up combination. So how do you wrestle with those things as a teacher? Do you think it's getting worse? I, I don't know. I know I have colleagues who've had experiences, encounters that suggest that maybe the, anxious, the, the aggressive anxiety about having exactly the right stance can really make students um, very punitive, very um, self-regardingly intolerant, and very, yeah, very harsh about the process that has to go into knowledge, awareness, wokeness, if you will. doesn't happen that way. What does self-examination exactly mean? I think we're really struggling with that. And how much of it has to be done in private? How much of it do you spill all over and perform on the, on, on the web? <laughs> you know, I've spoken so much about being um, times when I was ashamed of myself, but that has to turn into something else. It has to turn into some kind of set of actions that involve examination, not just reactions and compensations, the things you're ashamed of about your race beliefs, your, your gender limitations, class, your class presumptions. But some of that self-examination, it seemed to start for you in the late 70s when you get home from the newsroom, the social events, the, the protests, and what you were left with, as you write about, was depression which was a privilege, you write in Negroland, that had been denied by our history of duty, obligation, and discipline. We were not to be depressed or unduly high-strung. We were not to have nervous collapses. We had a legacy. We were too strong for that. By the time you're in the 70s, Nina Simone had become, as you write in the new book, the oracle of black power, of our collective grief and fury. When did you begin to find a temperamental kinship in her work? I had loved her early work, and I found temperamental kinship in that because I so admired, or at least aspiring temperamental kinship, the variety, the complexity, the, these conversations um, as she would rearrange a song, the piano and the voice, uh, always that sense of questing and pushing and exploring. When she became a symbol of, of Black power, I still hailed her and was riveted. It was collective. I didn't make a really personal connection again until that movie of, was it four or five years ago, Whatever Happened, Miss Simone, where we, the viewers, her admirers, who'd placed so many demands on her, realized that she learned that she had suffered from serious bipolar depression for years. Having in a milder way, had my own um, ongoing encounters uh, and had and have with that, having gone through a period in the 70s when self-examination turned into a kind of exhausted despair. I was so moved by her attempts to keep going and, and not be totally thwarted in silence the way she would act out violently then pull back, um, you know, and go forward with the concert. I, I was kind of overwhelmed. Were you overwhelmed because you saw yourself in her? Anyone who has, to some degree, um, encountered, encountered, and submitted to, um, you know, 
depression, bipolar, mood swings. Um, I feel a connection to them. I do. It took me a long time to find out that, to find that diagnosis. Maybe that's one reason I was so intent on behaving so well when I was a little girl. Keep those things, keep those monsters at bay <laughs> with that perfect behavior. What did that do to you when you discovered you had this, that, that it was diagnosable? It was frankly an enormous relief. Yes, you can take some medication. That doesn't change your life. But just to know that, that yeah, maybe that's one reason I, I took this idea um, of my own nervous system. I could construct it through this book, but I could construct it in ways that took in and made use of even these wild swings and these seizures of fury and, you know, and then sudden, sudden need for sweetness and light. You know, it, it could all be gathered together and, and given shapes. It's funny you say that because if you hear Nina Simone sing, or especially if you watch her in concert, you can sense this is someone pained and someone who has found a way to relinquish some of that pain through expression. And it sounds to me like you found your way of doing that through writing. I have more and more tried to. I think that's one reason that I moved from writing reviews to even the Michael Jackson book. This was certainly a creature in huge amounts of pain <laughs> and inflicting huge amounts of pain. And then on, on to memoir. I needed to take more chances in my writing. I needed to try out different techniques, different voices, different ways of splitting, <laughs> splitting those atoms, yeah. That transition from critic to memoirist or, or novelist it seems like you're trying to find or trying to define what your work is. And, and in the book, you quote Janet Malcolm's assessment of journalists. You then give your stern assessment of the critic. And I say that's what a critic is. Yeah. I wonder if what you're doing is a little bit closer to what Oscar Wilde wrote in The Critic as Artist. <laughs> Here's the quote. Okay. This is what the highest criticism really is the record of one's own soul. It is more fascinating than history as it is concerned simply with oneself. It is more delightful than philosophy as its subject is concrete and not abstract, real and not vague. It is the only civilized form of autobiography as it deals not with events, but with the thoughts of one's life, not with life's physical accidents of deed or circumstance, but with the spiritual moods and imaginative passions of the mind. Well, I love that. What I would say, though, is he's setting up a more ferocious division than I would pick. Um, memoir can deal with a sociological and historical self as well as, you know, the passions, the sensations of, of one mind. One helps shape the other. There's no such thing as this sacred individual self that hasn't been um, affected, tainted, stirred by the outside world. And maybe that's um, one reason. But I, what I love about those words is also that he, he allows criticism such intimacy. He, in some way, declares, presumes that you can bring any 
private, particular little uh, instinct um, from the self into your criticism. You can find a place for it. You can, and that seems to be something I'm very much doing in this book. Moving between the purely personal, the more generally cultural, was something I was very much doing in Negro Land. That line, the record of one's own soul. That's a beaut. I like it, but when it comes to your work, it feels almost incomplete to me because, I don't know, do you think a lot of your record in this new book and also Negroland, isn't it also the record of the souls around you, of the family you've had and have lost? Yes, especially the family I've had and lost in this book. And also, without my ever presuming to be the spokesperson for Black people. It is also, it is a racial collective as well, and a gendered collective, always with the intimacy and the particularity, but I I don't want the reader to forget those surroundings. I don't want to be above any of that material. I want it in conversation with what I can cherish and hold on to as my particular soul. When did that urgency begin to, 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 to record that history that was disappearing? You know, very, in terms of Negroland, I just, my father had died. My mother was getting much older. Her friends were starting to die. All those things I'd taken for granted, all the material, you know, of if I were writing a novel, what would it be? There are their meetings, their talks, their conversations, their clothes, their beliefs. It was all starting to wither away. And I thought, I've got to start talking to them. Not formally. I really did not do formal on the whole formal interviews, but taking in their voices, their their manners, all of that. Um, Because it's not a world that loads of people have written about. Well, they're starting to more. So it felt like private material that I needed to archive at the same time that I wanted and needed to record the ways in which I was moving against it, had moved away from it. I wanted to be, in that way, a critic as well as um, an archivist. And then came constructing a nervous system where I wanted that criticism particularly to merge with, to, again, be in some sort of, even when dissonant, harmonic and rhythmic um, relationship to very personal, familial stories. What are the roots of these, um, you know, when you're a critic, you're always kind of omniscient, you know, even if you're questioning or not sure. And what are the roots? Um, often the roots of something you fall in love with and write about. They're so, they're so humble. They're so modest. You know, they come out of some strange little dissonant, freakish, uh, <laughs> you know, like Bing Crosby and Minstrels or Condoleezza. Um, you know, how do you display that material? How does that affect your relationship and your reader's relationship to art entertainment, to, you know, that that strange space where, um, you know, the private part of us enters the culture, you know, with need and rapture and, and, and terror. What's striking me, or maybe the thing I'm, I'm trying to understand, is that you're, you're talking about archiving a personal history that is disappearing. And a cultural history, yes. It's personal, it's my family, but it's their world, yeah. But when it comes to your family, it's disappearing in large part because as you get older, 
the people you love. They die. Yeah. And yet the way you talk about it, you maintain such a such a buoyancy. Even in even in the face of that, you sound upbeat, almost triumphant. You mean in the book? In the book, in parts, but in this back and forth right now. Ah, uh, interesting. It's not as easy as, oh, that's my manic side. No, I've always had a certain buoyancy that takes pleasure in in the, the world as it is performing itself, in all the particulars of personality, of, you know, uh, of exchange, of drama. If it has some kind of drama to it, then I'm, then I'm interested. And I can play these scenes endlessly in my mind, you know, uh, me and Denise and, and my parents, and I can choose and I can curate them. And that does give me enormous pleasure. There are times that I think, oh, God, I'm an orphan and I'm an only child. <laughs> the, the, the paroxysms of self-pity that can take place in private. <laughs> I, I mean it. It's true. That's what we're trying to get here. We need... Is that what we're, just, that what we're trying to get let's, at? Okay. Let's get at that. Living theater. Margot, this is living theater. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I'm really asking you, God damn it, I'm trying to, yeah. fi- I'm trying to figure out, Margot, the buoyancy. Does it fully capture how you really feel. Now, you know it doesn't capture how I really feel all the time. You know, I am up and down virtually every day. I think that's the very much the way I did want to code that into constructing. I think that's why I structured it um, the way I did with these, okay, I, I can't think about that anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. I did want to find ways to be faithful to that. Yes, because um, (laughs) I hate being told, and you're not saying that. I've always hated being told, even before I knew that um, I was something other than a boy and child. Oh, you're so cheerful. I hate that Midwestern cover story, especially, um, you know, having been raised to be a good girl and a good black girl. So, you know, there must still be, that's what you're getting at, um, what appears to be... um, you know, the perfect cover. I think I try to be polite in public. No, I don't even try that so much anymore. But no. I hope you know, being polite on this show, don't need to do it. Well, I wasn't with you, particularly. I, wa- I wasn't. I was just thinking aloud in terms of what you'd, what you'd add. <laughs> Something I want to put on the record, because we're talking about records and, and archivism and holding things. There is an exchange you write about in the new book with your father growing up in Chicago, where you asked him why he chose pediatrics. Do you remember his answer? Yes. He said, I wanted to figure out, to see if I could figure out what was wrong with someone who couldn't tell me. It's interesting. He wanted to find language to help diagnose what was wrong with the patient. And you know, years later, A young novelist asked you, why did you choose to write memoir? You said, I wanted to make my way to my own American center and find language for the fractures there. I did say that, yes. That is very connected to um, what my father told me he wanted to do. And I find that almost overwhelming because he was uh, in many ways such a lovely man, but such a distant, benignly distant man. So I, I never had the intimate relationship with him that would have I would have loved. Why do you think 
you and your father in your respective lines of work both seem bound by this desire to find language for that which pains us. Probably for my father, I know. He rarely found the language himself or felt he could speak it aloud. I think for many years, as I, the kind of journalism I was doing towards material that became more and more directly personal, I think I was trying to um, find my way to, to a language that I could put on the page myself. Because the first, you know, you censor for your readers sometimes, but first you're censoring yourself. So I had to break past that. Like I said in the beginning of um, Negro Land, you know, I was taught, you know, to keep memoir at a distance. This is memoir material. Um, that desire to suppress or self or self censor it spreads all over, even to even into parts of your life that you don't think of as as personal. I was that was scaring me. I really wanted to test myself and push myself um, to say things that that were frightening, even not in content necessarily, but in form that were embarrassing. So yeah diagnosis and some form of, um, of catharsis. That desire to walk on a ledge and write something that is a little scary. I found that in reading the end of Negro Land, which I thought maybe you could read for us now. Okay. An adult life takes shape. You, me, are a writer, a journalist, a critic. You are a woman who grew up as a Negro and usually calls herself Black. African-American is strictly for official discourse. Genealogically speaking, you are of African, Irish, English, and Indian descent. You are a single woman. You intend to remain one. You've acquired enough sexual experience to feel you belong to your times. You do not have children. You never intended to. Sustained romantic intensities have not been for you your explanation not an untrue one, though not quite sufficient, is that you have let yourself be shaped by so many conventions, expectations, and requirements, institutions, peoples, by so much dread of disapproval that the, the discipline of solitude, severe solitude, has been required to give you the sense of an independent selfhood. The intensities of friendship suit you better. Friendship's choreography is for multiple partners, for varied groups, and surprisingly sustained duets. The human psyche is pathetic, I say, I declaim to my psychopharmacologist. It's what we have, Miss Jefferson, he replies. It's what we have. And what I have is what I take to my psychotherapist each week. What I have is what we make together, each supplying the material she knows best. There are days when I still want to dismantle this constructed self of mine. You did it so badly, I think. You lost so much time. And then I tell myself, so what? So what? Go on. <laughs> I feel a little exposed with that as the last thing I've read. But I wrote it. Is it okay? It is. I couldn't have, um, I mean, I, I never could have written any of that when I began the book. But by the time I made my way to the end, I could. But, you know, I've become more adventurous, partly because I've written and <laughs> wrote another book, okay? And did things I hadn't 
thought I could do. So, you know, that starts jumping out. So, yeah, I do. I feel, okay, things that I clearly was still anxious about being able to do, at least clear to me. It's clear to me. I was, I've found ways to do, to get at. So, yeah, I'll live with that. Those last words on the page, go on. They appear like a mantra in the opening of this new book. So if constructing a nervous system was your way of, of going on, of creating a new sense of self. But going on in more varied ways than that go on suggested at the end of Negroland. Precisely. If this book was your response to the end of Negroland, where does that put you now on the other side of this? I don't know what will happen next. I was um, so excited, but also so exhausted when I finished the book. And then when it came out, it's like, oh, oh, oh my God. And I remember so clearly what every single thing I wrote demanded or cost or brought, brought forth. And I reread big chunks of it and I pick it apart, but then I get excited. So um, I don't know. I don't know what will happen next. It'll be a different form. It will have, may have something to do with friendship, which um, is clearly complicated and, crit and critical. Um, you know, I'm not going to do anything in the next six months, I would say, unless I get caught by surprise, which could be fun. But I have no plans for the next six months to do anything wildly different. Uh, but I don't know. I'm capable of, of more changes than I definitely would once have thought. I like that. And so do I. <laughs> so do I. At 74. 70, yeah. Thank you, for, thank you for that. Yes, that's right. You're welcome. I just want to make sure everyone knows. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of generous host <laughs> I am. Yeah, you should have made me read that part about aging women <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Has this been all right? Yeah, I like this. I like this. We're leaving on a kind of ellipsis. But a blackout we can stage. And then when the light comes up again, God knows where either of us will be. I hope we're together at some point. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> Margot Jefferson, a pleasure to meet you. Likewise, Sam. One of a kind. our show. Special thanks to Josie Cowles, Penguin Random House, iHeartMedia, and of course, Margot Jefferson. 
To learn more about her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. In our back catalog, you'll find over 250 episodes, including talks with Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Dr. Cornell West, Jhumpa Lahiri, Ocean Vuong, Roxanne Gay, and George Saunders. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is share Talk Easy with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms, even in 2022, is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our associate editor is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Paulina Suarez and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, now more than ever. Stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.